Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. What exactly is the danger of Christian nationalism? And then we're joined by local pastor Dale Tippett. You're listening to The Common Good. Tuesday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. For those of you uh, who have forgotten, but you might be married, I'm speaking to the men out there in particular because I am one of them. Let me remind you that today is Valentine's Day Eve. And so uh, get on your horse, figure it out. Uh, If your wife truly doesn't want anything, don't make sure you know that with a thousand percent certainty. Uh, But, yeah, we hope that you uh, you've got it planned for tomorrow. I admitted yesterday that I'm not doing a good job in prepping for this for uh, my own life. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, just just make sure you got it right. Make sure you're good to go. And uh, we are glad that you are joining us today. All right. We've got uh, an election season coming up. I made it all of yesterday's show without talking politics. Very proud of myself. But we have an election season coming up and uh, kind of in the evangelical world, we're having to wrestle with this thing that is loosely titled or not loosely that is titled Christian nationalism. OK, I, I think it's hard to get our minds around. What is it and much the way when I talked to you last week and the week before you're kind of trying to challenge everybody? Do you actually know what you believe when you use the word woke? Because it's become this catch all phrase on the other end of the spectrum. This phrase Christian nationalism has become kind of this catch all phrase. But it is dangerous At its roots, I would suggest that it is dangerous because, you know, at its um, on a surface level, you might think to yourself, well, we're Christians, we're patriotic, we want we want the. We want Jesus, we want revival to break out in America. We want also to live in a country that abides by Jesus's values and purposes. Like you might think to yourself, what's the what's the harm here? In fact, shouldn't this be what we are talking about, like that we are excited about? So I found an audio clip. This actually came through. Uh, I've seen it through a couple different places. Um. And this was at a NAR um, gathering in Colorado in which they they read from a magnet they were given. And when I say, um, you know, when I say it's a gathering, we're not talking 100 people. We're talking an auditorium of thousands of people. And so what I want to do is play this. uh, It's kind of made like a prayer, 
but it's really like a decree. It's a declaration. It's a collective declaration specifically that the, but they're, but they're like speaking it into existence, right? Like you might not be from that kind of denominational framework, but it's like we, the church are going to speak this into existence. God will do this. And I want you to hear some of the things that they say. This is going to be about a minute and a half. What I, well, the reason I want to play it in its totality is because as we do, I want you to ask yourself, am I for this or not? Would I pray this or not? Is this a good thing or is it not? Because I think what goes on when we ask what is Christian nationalism, I think this gets at it. Let's go ahead and play this and listen to it. Let's say this together, all right? All right, just here we go. We decree and declare that America's executive branch of government will honor God and defend the Constitution. Our legislative branch, Congress, will write only laws that are righteous and constitutional. Our judicial system will issue rulings that are biblical and constitutional. We stand against wokeness, the occult, and every evil attempt against our nation. We now take back our God-given freedoms according to our Constitution. We take back influence at the local level in our communities. We take back and permanently control positions of influence and leadership in each of the seven mountains. The blood of Jesus covers and protects our nation. It protects and separates us for God. Our nation is energy dependent. We decree America is strong spiritually, financially, militarily, and technologically. We decree evil carries no power nor authority nor rights in our land nor over our people. And finally, we decree we will operate in unity beyond denominational lines to accomplish the purposes of God for our nation. If you believe that, give God a big praise. All right. So again, this is kind of a collective. They're all standing and they're holding these magnets that they're going to take home. And there's people on the stage and they're leading them in this. It's kind of a declaration. We are declaring And what are some of the things that they are declaring that the U.S. government will honor God? They will pass only laws that are righteous. They will issue only rulings that are biblical. But then they also say some other strange stuff. We we fight against wokeism. There's that word again that I challenged you last week. I would ask everybody there. What do you mean by that? Uh, And then they have policy things in there, which I think are so weird. But it gets to the point of how this um intertangling is dangerous we're energy independent like how's that that's part of that's an important policy thing to discuss that's an important political thing but how's that get into a declaration about what god's going to do we are uh, you know against wokeism again like what does that mean we will only do this we'll only do this so getting away from the belief that you can just speak it and god will do it What is underlying this? Understanding, you know, it's all about the Constitution and the founding fathers and the Constitution and the founding fathers. Very little Bible here, but also even 
John Adams, one of the writers of the Constitution, said the government of the United States of America and not is not in any sense founded on Christian religion. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, another one of the writers, said erecting the wall of separation between church and state is absolutely essential in a free society. See, the danger here, friends, is this melding together, this confusion between what God is up to in in our country, because God cares. God is at work in our country. What we're supposed to most care about and what it looks like that Jesus is at work in doing something, right? Like it should struggle. We should struggle with the fact that this decree, this declaration doesn't ever speak of the poor. Uh, doesn't ever speak of. Um, it doesn't ever speak of immigrants or homelessness or it's all about my rights and this, that. See, we have to be able to separate. The policies we believe in, what we work for, the poli- you know, the people we want um, voted for versus our faith and who God is and, and what he's who he's calling us to be. I say this all the time. We have a Lord and he is Jesus and we follow him. And it's not always going to fit nicely into these decrees that, quite frankly, seem to fall along the Republican talking points. And I'm one who tends to vote Republican almost exclusively, if not exclusively. But when we get these two mixed up, like God is, this is what God cares about and we're decreeing it. Now we are also taking the people that we are leading down a path that is also dangerous. Do I want to see revival break out? Absolutely. And I don't believe revival is going to break out through the halls of Congress and the White House. I believe it's going to break out grassroots through the churches. And that's our focus. So vote and care, but don't mix these two up. I do not want to sign up for what those people are chanting and what they are. That's just not what I'm looking for. How about you? How'd you feel about what they declared? There's a fascinating discussions going around right now on the Internet about a new book coming out um, about Elizabeth Elliot. And people are struggling with this is the struggle with any biography, right? How much do we want to know? The author is Lucy Austin, and this book is called Elizabeth Elliot, A Life. Um, for many of us, we grew up in a day, especially women out there who saw Elizabeth Elliot as, you know, kind of this Christian celebrity. We use that phrase a lot, but in a different way. So the story of Elizabeth Elliot's basically this. I went to Wheaton College and you always hear the stories of Jim Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot, um, Nate Saint, Rachel Saint, all of them. Uh, Jim Elliot, Nate Saint and others uh, went to Ecuador uh, on missions, right? Like they were going to go and, and, and like save the Horani, Horani people. And, uh, in 1956, immediately after getting there, Jim Elliott, uh, and the others were killed. They were killed by the Horani people. Jim Elliott became famous for his writing. So, uh, he is no fool who gives up that, which he cannot keep for that, which he cannot lose. It was essentially his most famous quote. Um, and again, they all were Wheaton grads. And so we, 
you go, you barely go a couple days at Wheaton. You know, there's Elliott Hall, there's St. Hall, there's all of, you know, named after them and this and that. Um, and so, uh, this book, so Elizabeth Elliott, then her and Rachel Saint, uh, whose brother Nate Saint died in the attack. They went and lived amongst the Rurani people in 1958, the ones who killed their loved ones. And uh, God did amazing work through them. And then she became a prolific author. You might remember uh, some of her books like Through the Gates of Splendor, Shadow of the Almighty, and others. And so Elizabeth Elliot, till her death, was... Um, and rightfully so, and that's one of Austin's points here, a revered person. But like every life, a little more complicated than the sanitized version of her husband was killed. She was the grieving widow. She went and worked amongst the people. God did amazing things. She wrote all these books. Um, so the book that I'm reading from Christianity Today, kind of a, a, um, a synopsis of it, and they dive into her doubts. They dive into the strange. I remember Aubrey and I talked about this months ago. Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott, who were held up by many people as the picture of like godly dating. And this had a terribly dysfunctional um, courtship. It wasn't even dating. There was manipulation and there was possible like uh, emotional abuse or whatever else it might be. And people struggle with that because for many years it was like, Oh, Jim Elliott, like we see, we, we lie, we, we idolize these people. We, we make them kind of bigger than life. It's Elizabeth Elliott remarried and her second husband died a young, uh, painful death of cancer. She had a third marriage and that marriage was not healthy. Um, but all the while she was writing and she was, uh, speaking and doing all of these things. And in some ways it feels like um, the, the picture, the public picture of Elizabeth Elliot and the real accurate picture of Elizabeth Elliot were not the same thing. And a lot of it might not even have been her fault. I didn't even know this. I was reading this. Her and Rachel Saint were two of the most prayed for missionaries, they say in this article, because they were with the Hurani people, well, Rani people who killed their loved ones. Most people don't know that they left the mission field because they couldn't get along with each other anymore. Irreconcilable differences. So what do you do with that? Um, yeah. And so I like the way they finish this off. And then I'll, I'll tell you what, what I think the main point is. It says, uh, this is really a book review about this. It says, in the end, uh, the author, Austin, portrays Elliot as a complex and flawed person, but one used powerfully by God, especially in the cause of missions. For Elizabeth Elliot, Austin concludes, the foundation of life was trust in the love of God. This was no pious truism. It was a gritty conviction born out of repeated Job-like experiences of suffering. We may hope that her story will continue inspiring radical discipleship and missionary service, all while fostering confidence that in Austin's words, all things in heaven and on earth will finally be made whole. In the end, Austin portrays Elliot as a complex and flawed person. Friends, like Aren't we all? 
Like, I think portrayals like this, some people have gotten mad about this, this book because it kind of tears down some of the, um, some of the thoughts we have about Elizabeth Elliot. I think the opposite. We should be cheering on books like this who take away the veil and go, Hey, Elizabeth Elliot, it doesn't change her writings. It doesn't change what she did, but let's not consider her to be like this saint this uh, above problems and all of this stuff. Same things about when you read about Billy Graham or others, like we need to humanize these people, not try to protect some, some narrative about them because then that allows us to more take our eyes off of them and appreciate not just the fruit, but the fruit that God accomplished through them. Do you understand? Like, this is why we talk so much about the dangers of Christian celebrityism, because when they inevitably fall and some of them fall just a little, some of them have great falls when they inevitably fall, then it disillusions our faith rather than going. But praise God that he used these imperfect people. You read this book and Elizabeth Elliot was clearly imperfect. And that's no slight at her. We are all imperfect. Our stories of any eternal influence or or work are all stories of God's goodness. They're all stories of look what God has done. And so we, we, we can actually celebrate that even though it's painful to have these Christian heroes humanize like, hey, no, Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott, they had the same college dating issues. No, it was in the 50s, so it's different, but they had the same issues that many of us had when we started dating in college. Elizabeth Elliot had a lot of the same doubts that many of us have had, especially going through hard times. Her theology wasn't always uh, perfectly lived out in her life. Guys, those are all descriptions of all of us. And so we should we should eat up these kinds of stories and these kinds of accurate portrayals and not go, well, we got to protect this image that we had of Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot, Billy Graham. Whoever else it might be, because now we can celebrate this flawed person who loved Jesus and all the complexities that come with life made such a difference that it points us back to a savior and a God who's doing things through broken jars of clay, through imperfect vessels that gets me excited because then I go, well, what can he do in my life? What can he do through me? So book looks interesting. Elizabeth Elliot, her life, um, a life, Elizabeth Elliot, a life came out back in the middle of 2023. I'd encourage you if you're interested in those types of things to pick it up. All right. I, I, Hey, sometimes, sometimes an article's got a great title and it makes you go, oh, I want to read that. So uh, that was the case at Christianity Today where I read this. All hail the power of stage lighting. Our congregation should be formed by the world. Uh, nope. Eh, opposite. Our congregation should be formed by the word, not by the flashiest technology. So what's the point? This uh, author, his name is Brad East. Uh, he is an associate professor of theology at Abilene Christian University. He talks about how he always asks his um, 
his students, what would you bring to a church? What What is needed at a church if you were to start a church in a town or you're visiting and how inevitably they start talking about lighting? And so his he kind of uses that as the jumping off point here to say, hey, most churches are small. Most churches can't handle lighting. Uh, but that in fact, so this is a big church thing. Um, but that in reality that we put too much on it. Okay. And so the Sunday morning experience of high tech kind of public worship, and we know this from the mega churches, but it makes its way down. You know, my church has 150 people there on a Sunday and we have lights and we have, you know, our worship people and our tech people think through that. Um, but is there a, he wants to ask, is there an issue? Um, is there an issue? He says, there's no question that ministers at churches like these that have been described have been motivated by good intentions. If more people want to hear the gospel and give praise to God, should we not make it possible for them to do so? Should we not build it praying they will come? Few would suggest that the mere size of a building is evidence of unfaithfulness, nor would I propose that microphones be abolished in favor of preachers gifted with naturally loud voices. That's a caricature of so-called Luddite concerns with new technology. Theological questions about technology are more serious than that. For one, they're rarely answerable in advance. They're discerned on the ground, but they do require discernment. The mere fact that a new technology appears at first to aid in the church's mission is not sufficient. We might instead in interrogate the nature of Christian worship itself. So that's what he's going to get at. Okay, he's going to get at this. I think this article unfairly makes a dichotomy between churches that use lighting and, you know, what's the other, smoke machines or whatever, and churches that stick to the Bible. Like, I think this is a little bit um, unnecessarily dualistic. You either do this or you do this because he's going to get into liturgy. He said, notice what is necessary for the celebration of the liturgy that he described above. Sisters and brothers gathered in the name of Jesus, a leader, the Bible, a little bread and wine, believers, scriptures, elements, and a place to bring them together. That's it. In fact, on a given Sunday morning around the world, you can find them brought together in cathedrals, in houses, in apartments, in strip malls, in cafeterias, in mud huts, out in the open by rivers and under trees, hidden in basements. This is the genius of Christian liturgy. Beyond the tools required to produce texts and food and drink. No technology is necessary for the church to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Perhaps as the case may be, new technologies have the potential to help, but they always have the potential to harm, to distort and misshape. On one hand, worship is a form of catechesis. It molds our hearts and minds and imaginations. Young people are right to expect on a given Sunday that they have been seen and heard on hundreds of that what they have seen and heard on hundreds of previous Sundays. It's clear to me that the present catechesis has worked, but in all the wrong ways. See, he's kind of saying that, that I just think he's getting into his opinion here because he says too many evangelicals assume that ordinary worship is what I've elsewhere called the tech church show, a performance in every sense of the word, not the drama of the Eucharist or the reenactment of the liturgical script, but a slick high definition production but i should say to the time-tested wisdom let's go back to word and sacrament i just i don't think these are at odds with each other do high-tech churches need to think through the influence uh that 
tech is having? Do they need to think through um, is there manipulation going on by the lighting or this? Sure. But I know of a lot, a lot, a lot of low tech churches that also get this wrong. They just don't have the ability to or the the money or whatever to be tech savvy. They also don't put the focus on the right things. And what I get worried about is like sometimes the people who have like the 70 person churches with no tech and no this, they think they like wear it as a badge of honor instead of going, hey, how can I creatively engage this culture? He closes by this way, saying much can be said for a joyful service that communicates both uninhibited and spirit filled adoration. But faithful worship is and therefore should be something any church can do regardless of production level. We must imagine an alternative catechesis, one that uh, brings to mind, first of all, the risen Christ, his living word, his body and blood, his gathered people. The question is, what kind of worship would produce such a thought? I would say the high tech, high produced one can do it like on a grand scale. I do agree with this guy. We can't lose the focus that our gathering together uh, has to first focus on risen Jesus, his word, his body and blood, the sacraments, his gathered people. I think we can all agree on that. But I think sometimes. When done well, the high-tech churches, I'm using air quotes for high-tech production churches that he's kind of critiquing here, do that better than some of the other low-tech churches. I've been in low-tech churches that don't bring to mind the risen Christ. They don't uh, focus on the word, the sacraments, his gathered people. Like This is not a tech issue. I think this is a a what's the liturgy? What is the point of the church issue? If you're in a house church, if you're meeting outside, if you've got 30 people in your church, you can ask the question he asks. Does it first bring to mind the risen Christ, his living word, his body and blood, his gathered people? If you're in a thousand plus person church, a multi thousand person church where lights are used and it can be loud and this and that. You have to ask yourself, is it still bringing to mind the risen Christ, his living word, his body and blood, his gathered people? This is the question that every church should be asking themselves. This is not a danger simply of great production. For some people, the great production is the draw, and that brings them in to hear this. For other people, it's a huge hindrance, and both are okay. One's not right while the other is wrong, is what I would like to say. And I want to be careful that we don't arrogantly get into that dichotomy. I saw this at the Pew Research Center, and the reason it stands out is because Pew does great work. This isn't just some random organization. They they are like the number one kind of go-to for research, for statistics, for surveys, uh, and all of that. And they wrote this, eight facts about atheists. So we're going to get facts like a lot of us in the church and the church world, like atheists are kind of the boogeyman. And we make these weird thoughts about who are these people who would, who would self-identify as atheists. So this says, uh, according to 2023 national public opinion reference survey, atheists make up only 4% of us adults. That compares with 3% who described themselves as atheists in 2014 and 2%. So rising, but not rising quickly. I would guess that number is a lot higher. Now, there's probably a lot of 
non-practicing stuff, agnostics, but straight atheists. I believe there's nothing else out there. Four percent. Here are some key facts about atheists in the United States and around the world based on several Pew Research surveys. So let me just read the eight and then we'll kind of kind of unpack it together. In the U.S., atheists are mostly men and are relatively young, according to a center survey conducted in 2023. Around six in 10 U.S. US atheists are men and seven in 10 are younger than 49 Atheists are also more likely than the general public to be white and have a college degree. Roughly eight in 10 atheists identify with or lean towards the Democratic Party. So that's a picture of who these people are. Number two, almost all U.S. atheists, that's 98 percent, say religion is not too or not at all important in their lives. That makes sense. Why would religion be important in your life if you're an atheist? An identical amount share say that they seldom or never pray again. That makes total sense. Number three. Oh, by the way, it says, though, 79% of atheists say they do feel a deep sense of wonder about the universe at least several times a year. Number three. U.S. atheists and religiously affiliated Americans find meaning in their lives in some of the same ways. We asked an open-ended question about this. Like a majority of Americans, most atheists mentioned family as a source of meaning. However, atheists were far more likely than Christians to describe their hobbies as meaningful or satisfying. Atheists were also more likely than Americans overall to describe finances and money, creative pursuits, travel, and leisure activities as meaningful. Very few atheists, only 4%, said they found life's meaning in spirituality. So, uh That is, again, not surprising. Number four, atheists make up a larger share of the population in many Western European countries than in the U.S. Again, I don't think that's a huge surprise. But let's give out the numbers. According to uh, a center survey that included 10 European countries, Nearly a quarter of French adults, 23% of adults living in France, identify as atheists. As do 18% of adults in Sweden, 17% of adults in the Netherlands, and 12% in the United Kingdom. Go back to that first one. Nearly a quarter of adults in France claim no faith at all. They claim atheism as their religious identity. That's, that's a wild Number five, most U.S. atheists express concerns about the role religion plays in society. Ninety four percent say that a statement, quote, religion causes division and intolerance, describes their view a great deal or a fair amount. And ninety one percent say the same about the statement. Religion encourages superstition and illogical thinking. Nearly three quarters of atheists say religion does more harm than good in American society. Number six. We got eight of them here about atheists. Number six, atheists may not believe religious teachings, but they are quite informed about religion. Our survey says that atheists were among the best performing groups in in religious knowledge. On average, they answered about eight out of 18 out of 32 fact based questions correctly, while U.S. adults overall got roughly 14 correctly. Atheists were also at least as knowledgeable as Christians as in Christianity related questions. For example, eight in 10 in both groups knew that Easter commemorates the resurrection of Jesus. Painting a picture here. This is interesting. 
Number seven, most Americans don't think believing in God is necessary to be a good person. When we ask people which statement came closer to their views, 73% selected, it is possible to be moral and have good values without believing in God. Well, 25% said it is necessary to believe in God to have morals and high values. Uh, that one's interesting because I think I grew up believing that um, it was harder at least to be a good person. There was no sense of morality if you weren't a Christian, but uh, that is not true. We find that not to be true. And number eight, uh, about three quarters of U.S. atheists, 77% do not believe in God or higher power or in a spiritual force. At the same time, 23% say they do believe in a higher power of some kind, while fewer than 1% of U.S. atheists say they believe in God as described in the Bible. I would think that makes you not an atheist, right? This shows they said that not all self-described atheists fit in the literal definition of atheist, which Merriam-Webster's dictionary says is a person who does not believe in the existence of God or any God. So what, what's the takeaway besides that being interesting? Uh, what is the takeaway? What's the takeaway? Friends, I think it's this. Uh, to the general atheist. There is a knowledge of Christianity. So therefore, there are places to enter into conversation. That was the most fascinating one to me, that uh, that many of the atheists were actually more knowledgeable of things of the faith. So you don't have to go in and be like, well, you just don't understand. Let me tell you. No, no, they understand. They've just rejected. And so we kind of build on that. Secondly, I was also challenged by the one that says, a lot of atheists believe that Christians have uh, don't do more harm than good or religious people do more harm than good. That should challenge us. We can't be that. We have to. The thought process has always been they may not believe what we say, but they need to look at our lives and go. Something's different. And that's not happening. And I think we need to be challenged by that. Engage your atheist friends in conversation, your agnostic friends. They know the, the bottom line as to what we're what we're talking about. And let's pray that God would bring atheists in our lives, agnostics, nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who have deconstructed that God through his Holy Spirit would bring uh, them back. As we close out this Tuesday, today is Fat Tuesday. Uh, a lot of you, especially in the Catholic tradition or uh, some other traditions, uh, today is the day. It's Mardi Gras. It's Fat Tuesday. It is the day that you get everything out of your system before Ash Wednesday tomorrow and Lent and the giving up of things. And so uh, it's also the day before Valentine's Day. So be sure to be thinking about that, friends, especially I, I'm a guy, so I can speak to the guys out there. Uh just have it in your mind. No, it's coming tomorrow. You've been warned. It's like you, you got to be good. Anniversary, your wife's birthday, Valentine's Day. And at least you might be like, oh, we don't celebrate Valentine's. Have the conversation in the house. Make sure that they are that, that you are on the same page with that, because uh, you might think you would not be the first man to be incorrect about that. So uh, anyway, we're glad that you joined us all day today. If you've missed any of our show, go get the podcast wherever it is. Get your podcast, subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at 
Common Good Talk. Again, it's been good to be with you today, and we love for those of you who do catch up with us. I saw this article over at Christianity Today, and I thought it'd be an interesting place to end today because it's not a new article. It's from the end of 2018, which is interesting because just how different does 2018 feel to now? Um, COVID in the middle of that and just a different world that we live in now. But it was entitled this, Can Anger at God Be Righteous? Can Anger at God Be Righteous? And then it says the Psalms show us how to faithfully protest to God. I want you to think about that for a second. Is it um, is it ever okay to be angry at God and to express that anger? Because a lot of you feel anger. Why did you? Uh, why did you allow this person to die or be sick? Why did I lose my job? Why haven't you answered my prayer? Whatever else it might be. And we feel anger. But then on top of that comes the guilt of going, I'm not allowed to be angry at God. But then we open up the scriptures and this article particularly highlights the Psalms. And you go, wow, there does appear to be a whole range of emotions in the Psalms, happiness, joy, sadness, lament, but we also read anger. And so we're left with the question, is there such thing as righteous anger? Is there such thing as faithful anger? And is it okay So this guy, Todd Billings, he writes this. The resistance to lament in many evangelical circles is rooted in a deep worry. Is it ever acceptable, even faithful, to direct our anger at God? Like many others, I was taught implicitly that bringing protest to God is wrong by carefully avoiding praying or singing those types of psalms. Presumably, we skip over a third of the psalms because they are unacceptable models for prayer. But I've also heard pastors from a wide range of church traditions explicitly teach that it's sinful to be angry at God with God. For example, John Piper grants that it can be faithful to bring our anger at others into the presence of God. But he claims that directing anger towards God is always a, quote, sinful emotion. Why? Because anger should only be directed toward those who are sinful and fallible. He says, anger at a person always implies strong disapproval. If you're angry at me, you think I have done something I should not have done. Yet in contrast, God's ways are perfect. Piper argues um, it is wrong, always wrong to disapprove of God for what he does and permits. And permits. And Billings goes on to say, in biblical terms, Piper's half right. For there are two major trajectories of anger at God in Scripture. In one, anger towards God leads to an exit, cutting ourselves off from fellowship, serving other gods. The book of Exodus and Numbers give numerous instances of the grumbling of the Israelites. They turned away from God. But Billings goes on to say Piper's approach misses the second major biblical trajectory, which gives us a path for faithfully expressing complaint, anger, and even protest to God. In this approach, God's people do not turn away from their covenant Lord, but toward him. Indeed, every time that psalmists express anger toward God, they do so in prayer in fellowship with the Lord, even if they also express a provisional disapproval 
of God's actions. The psalmist don't exit the space of fellowship. They do not write off God, even as they complain, how long, Lord, how long will you forget me? Rather than stomp away, psalms like this bring anger at God to God, focusing not upon our own ideas, but God, where are you? I cry to you for help. Where are you? In fact, the psalmist expresses anger at God, not because of a lack of faith, but because of a deep faith in God's promises. So what does faithful complaint look like? As ones who are in Christ, we are free to express our frustrations, our angers, our complaint. When we feel abandoned by God, we can and should call out, my God, my God, to the one who's promised to never forsake us. We don't pray by ourselves, but we, we groan inwardly. And then this uh, Billings ends it this way. He says this, there's a better way, a good medicine to receive that in addition to our confession, thanks and praise, our covenant Lord calls us to bring our hopelessness, anger, fear and bitterness before him. In his love, the Lord calls us to trust him enough to wrestle with his promises. In order to grow up into our identity in Christ, we need to join the psalmist in rejoicing, lamenting, and crying out to the Lord in a myriad of ways. I, I, I think he's right. When we read the Psalms, one of the emotions that we see in there is anger and frustration. Where are you, God? Why are you not acting? What are you doing? But I think he's right. If that anger, if that protest causes us to doubt and turn away, then it is not helpful. It is wrong. But if it causes us to lean in and go, I, I'm, I'm, I don't understand. Our God is big enough for that. He's big enough to deal with our doubts and our angers and our frustrations we don't need to add on top of this shame and guilt to having feelings like that, even towards God. But I believe the healthy thing is as we express them in prayer, as we come into his presence, as we stop faking it and we start going, no, this is what's going on in my soul. I don't understand where you are or why you've done this or why you haven't done that. God doesn't throw us out of his presence, but he instead he meets us there. And through his Holy Spirit, he brings peace. He brings comfort. He brings his presence. He brings perspective. And so if you're feeling that way right now, like the psalmist, cry out to God. Cry out to him. Be honest with him. So many of us fake what's going on in our lives. Don't do that. But instead, cry out to him like the psalmist have and there find his presence, his power, and his peace. Well, we're glad that you joined us today uh, yet again for another day again on Fat Tuesday, Valentine's Day Eve, whatever it is you want this to be. Uh, lots of things going on today, but we hope you join us again tomorrow. Beginning of Lent, Valentine's Day. We hope that you join us again tomorrow from four until six. Until then, have yourself a wonderful evening. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.